Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Hi, everyone, and thank you for tuning in to the 469th episode of the Hollywood Reporters Awards Chatter Podcast. I'm the host, Scott Feinberg, and my guest today is a New York-born, L.A.-based filmmaker who has been described by the Los Angeles Times as a director who has uncommonly carved a career on his own terms. By the New York Times as an accidental maverick, an unrepentant traditionalist in a business that prizes newness and shtick, and by the French newspaper Le Monde as one of the great American directors of our time. He has written or co-written and directed eight feature films over the last 28 years. 1994's Little Odessa, 2000's The Yards, 2007's We Own the Night, 2008's Two Lovers, 2013's The Immigrant, 2016's The Lost City of Zed, 2019's Ad Astra, and this year's Armageddon Time, all of which had their world premiere at one of the world's elite film festivals, five at Cannes, two at Venice, and one at New York. I'm talking, of course, about James Gray. Over the course of our conversation at his home in Los Angeles, the 53-year-old and I discussed the turmoil that was going on at home in New York as he headed off to L.A. to attend film school and then, at the age of just 23, to make his widely acclaimed first feature. The challenges that he has encountered along the way, both on indies, including multiple run-ins with Harvey Weinstein, and on studio films, including having a film taken away from him, why he has so often returned in his films to New York's outer boroughs and to the subjects of immigration, social class, and his own family, most recently in Armageddon Time, plus much more. And so without further ado, let's go to that conversation. All right, James, thank you so much for joining us on the podcast or having us to to you for the podcast. It's uh, great to have you. And I know this first question that we always begin with is largely uh, answered in your movies. But for anyone who may not know, where were you born and raised and what did your folks do for a living? Well, first of all, I'm uh, I'm, I'm thrilled to be here, I say usually, but here means my guest house, <laughs> right? so it's okay. Um, I'm from Queens, New York, uh, from... Uh, working-class neighborhood called Flushing, I used to say, as in the toilet bowl. <laughs> my my father was, uh, it was sort of like, I, I, des- I described him to others as Stanley Kowalski with a PhD. He, uh, he had gotten about 80,000 degrees. He was the son of a plumber, and he himself did a lot of plumbing work. He would fix people's hot water heaters and you know that then he would he was able to go into his you know wife beater and go under the refrigerator and fix your refrigerator and mm. stuff like that mm. so he did that for a while and sundry other things and my mother was uh, a school teacher in home economics at a high school in, in bayside queens now also related to your films that will come to i mean you come from a family of immigrants not that far back right i mean in fact both sets of parents, right, uh, had parents from outside of the country. Well, the different is a, a, there was a social 
a big class divide between my father's parents and my mother's for exactly the reason that you just asked me about. My father's parents came over independently of each other. They didn't know each other, but both in the same year, 1923, which is very late. Uh, Ellis Island's doors closed for all intents and purposes in 1924. Coolidge had put forth some quotas. And Ellis Island stayed open for another 30 years, but really as a place for political dissidents and, and very sparsely populated. The Ellis Island that we know about, which is like you know, the Godfather to Ellis Island, which is like packed full of immigrants mm -hmm. of all stripes. That really was only 1900 to 1923. My family got in right before the door slammed shut on my father's side. Mm -hmm. And he was, he spoke no English till the day he died. Same thing with my grandmother on my, father, um, on my father's side. And they were from Brooklyn. They settled in Brooklyn in Bed-Stuy, Bed and he was a plumber by trade. My grandparents on my mother's side were not, uh, from that generation. they, I think my, I, you forget these things. My brother knows the history better than I do, but my mother's parents' parents came over and brought them with them in, I think, 1903. Mm -hmm. uh, so they had a much more, they did not speak with any European or th I should say thick European accent. My grandfather was a very proper man and actually came in and almost like urbane, almost sounded like a deeply or at least to my ear refined englishman you know mm -hmm. and my my grandmother had a slight brooklyn accent or, or or i should say lower east side accent you know a slight one hello darling this kind of thing <laughs> but uh but for the most part they were a very different social standing than my father's parents and a number of them have obviously popped up in films that will bring up but before we get to that you have said quote uh oh the most important thing you can communicate as a parent is is the kid wanted and loved. You can make a ton of other mistakes, but as long as that's clear, the kid will probably be all right. My parents didn't really do that, but my grandfather did. And I think you're talking about your mother's my father. Mother, my mother's father, he was a beautiful guy. He was a very tender person. He was, like I said, he was a very elegant guy. And he was not the kind of, you know, Hester Street, not, by the way, which I think is a beautiful movie, yes. but it was not that cliched, now cliched, yes. you know, pickle salesman, Lower East Side, like, my name is Moishe, I'm <laughs> going to sell you some pickles. He was not like that at all. Right. He uh, he always wore this fedora, which had gotten quite beaten up by the time he was uh, uh, elderly, and he always wore a jacket and tie, I remember, and knew exactly how to fold his handkerchief in his pocket. And he was the guy who I felt in my youth, saw me. You know, he would sit with me and listen to me, and he would be inculcating me about moral and ethical uh, foundations for me. And I, I, it really spending the time with me that, frankly, my father and mother didn't. In some ways, I don't blame them. You know, you're talking about the period we're discussing. It's really the late 1970s, and I know that my father struggled mightily to pay the bills. And I think that my brother and I became a, sort of a secondary res responsibility uh, to actually getting food on the table. So it was left to my grandfather to raise us. So the, the struggles of your father, you, I think this may lead into the next question, which is a period, I guess, certainly after Armageddon time in your chronology, but before, well, actually probably more with to do with the yards, uh, in a sense, you're you had a a short stretch of time when a lot of bad things happened, right? Uh, just to tee it up, 
um, because I've, I've read and listened to you talk about this before. And I think, how could this not really shape a person? But your father had some legal trouble within uh, just months later, your mother passes away pretty suddenly. You and your brother are off to schools, colleges. What did that feel like? That's a whirlwind when all of this suddenly hits at, at once, right? Um, I haven't actually spoken to it all that much. Uh, I did do fairly recently a discussion with Terry Gross on NPR, and she she brought it up. I was uh, uh, momentarily startled because it had been a while since I discussed it openly. I mean, it's it, by the way, not me criticizing her. It's out there, and it's, it's she has every right to ask me about it. I just I just was surprised to be sure, honest. Sure. And it was years after the film takes place. The Armageddon time takes place in 1980, and so this all came down. You talking about the yards? Th this all came down. I want to say starting around 1987, mm -hmm. um, and then it finally culminated. I believe my father's sentencing was officially 1991. So you're talking about a four-year period, um, and the sentencing was only the final sort of stroke in the in the action and we knew what was coming down far before that mm -hmm. so you're quite right it was a very short period of time where the family unit was essentially completely pulled apart you know to be perfectly honest about it i i don't look at it i mean i think back on it now and when people ask me about it it does sound appropriately awful but when you're going through it um all you can think of is how to make it through the day. And you don't really look at it, at least I didn't, with a kind of, dare I say, self-pity. Um, I think I probably should have taken more time on myself, maybe even seen a therapist, which at the time I wasn't doing. Uh, but it's the only life you have. You don't have a reference point to, you know, uh, Warden June Cleaver. You, 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 have, uh, you have only yourself. So... The, the thing that hurt me the most, obviously, was my mother's death, which was a, a crushing blow to our family. And the way she went, you know, not that there's ever a good way to die at such a young age. I mean, she got sick. She was 47 years old. And what that has done, I think, is it made me think that I had to do everything in my life by the time I was 35. You never know what will happen after that. It definitely sped up my clock, if you, mm -hmm. if you will. But also my father's legal troubles, I rationalized them. And I still rationalize them a little bit. Because my, it's, it's one thing to look at it from a distance and say, you know, your father had this problem with the law. My mother was an extremist. It's impossible to contemplate what that must have been like for him uh, for anybody outside of the circle of people that we were, I mean, I know what it meant to me. I couldn't think straight. So the only thing that I can tell you now, looking back on it, is that I it is traumatizing. Mm. I'm just not sure I thought about it at the time, with the exception of my mother. And I don't think I, I think I thought, I can handle it. Mm -hmm. I can deal with it. Now, the four-year period that you referenced, 87 and 91, I think is exactly the same time when you were off to the other side of the country to go to USC's School of Film and Television, That's right. right? That's right. So do you think that it made things, did it help or hurt you to, to be on the other side of the country when things were kind of in disarray? 
It's a great question. I've never been asked that. The only way that I can put it is, is this way. As with many things in life, the answer is a bit complicated. On the one hand, it helped, I think, my survival on a day-to-day -day basis because I was so far away and I felt a huge drive to succeed. And like I said, by a young, by a young age, right. because I didn't know what was going to face me past a certain age. And I focused on that, and I focused on films. You know, cinema was something I loved. I would, I remember, I, I didn't have a car, but I, the Norris Cinema Theater, which was on USC's campus, they would show like a Burt Lancaster retrospective. And by the way, I would see these films with my friends. One of whom, a uh, very good friend of mine, was John Singleton, who was in the filmic writing program. And there were a lot of times when John and I would be the only people sitting in a Burt Lancaster movie, like Come Back, Little Shiva, you know, something <laughs> right. like that. And uh, I really made uh, some very close friends in that time period as a result. And I was isolated from the catastrophes in New York. On the other hand, I would be lying if I didn't tell you that I felt terrible, terrible pangs of guilt. Uh, I was 3,000 miles away while my mother was living her last few months and my brother was in the thick of it, and my father with his brewing legal troubles, mm -hmm. I felt in some cases that I had abandoned the effort. If we can go back for a second, where, where did the love of film, the desire to even pursue it to the extent that you go off to USC, where did that originate from? Usually you can't target things like with such specificity, but I can in this case. Um, it was the, I can tell you it was the fall right before Thanksgiving, of 1981, so about a year after Armageddon time takes place. I was always into, I was always kind of pretentious and arty-farty, as they say. I was, I really, I wanted to be a painter first. Mm -hmm. And in the fall of 81, I was in some kind of trouble, as they say, scuffling. And in the new school I was in, I had, as usually is the case when somebody manages to get out or survive, one person or one teacher who took an interest in me. And he and his wife, he was my Latin teacher. And they recognized, for whatever reason in me, uh, something of interest. They said, let's focus on something that you like. I said, I like, uh, you know, back then I said, I think I like Reggie Jackson and Dave Winfield, you know. <laughs> Later on, my obsession became Don Mattingly and Patrick Ewing. Right. But that's a whole other story. <laughs> And uh, they said, well, we can't do anything about that. Anything else you like? I said, well, movies are cool. So I said, ah, let's start a film club. So some friends of mine and I went with them, if, I think the Wednesday before Thanksgiving, to a theater called the Carnegie Hall Cinema, which was a revival house where you went down under Carnegie Hall, and they had an espresso and cappuccino bar, and we saw a double feature of Apocalypse Now and Dr. Strangelove. Wow. And... I have to tell you, look, I love uh, Jaws. I think it's a brilliant film. To this day, I think it's brilliant. But it almost plays like a rip-roaring adventure, something like that combined with a horror movie. In other words, it's very, it's very pulpy in its way. I don't say that to denigrate it, by the way. It is a masterful work. And there were other movies like Star Wars and, and Superman, Superman, the 1978 film and, 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 and King Kong, the remake with Jeff Bridges and Jessica Lange, the John Gullerman movie. And I, I had seen those. And all of a sudden, I'm sitting there, 
<laughs> and I thought to myself, what is that? It's a black screen, you're hearing this noise. And then you hear that, you know, the Robbie Robbie's guitar from the doors, you know, and and that Densmore drums comes in and and Jim Morrison starts singing and there's this explosion and it was like a whole new world was open to me. Mm-hmm. And uh about five and a half hours later, I wanted to be a movie director. Amazing. And then, as we say, you go off to USC. And while you're there, uh, again, I guess now with for listeners, obviously now with the understanding of what you were talking about, this sense of urgency to make things happen faster maybe than most people, it seems like that is what happened there because your, your student thesis film, I believe it was, right. was something that, was impressive enough to get quite a bit of attention that from people who were subsequently instrumental in, I guess, launching your professional career after you graduated. So can you just talk about for, for people who, who may not know what, what was the student film about and how did these other people come to become champions of yours? We don't like to contemplate the idea of luck because (laughs) it's frightening. You know, we like to say that Pluck, you know, hard work, <laughs> effort, right. all of which, by the way, may I say, matter hugely. It doesn't happen without hard work, obviously. But I was very, very lucky. Um, I had made, I had been, the fact that I had been chosen to make the film, first of all, is luck. The uh, teachers who made the selections apparently made it entirely on the basis of script. I just chose a script that they liked. I didn't write it. So there's luck you know, who saw the movie at the official student film screenings. That was luck. You know, a certain agent showed up. His name was Jeremy Zimmer. Yeah. And he saw the film and he responded to it. And when I got the cast for my first feature film, that was in some ways luck. You know, it was uh, Vanessa Redgrave was in town to do something for this Sarajevo Artist Relief Fund and she was just there for five days, and I had her for five days, and boom, there's Vanessa Redgrave in my movie, and I'm 23 years old. So it is, a lot of it is luck. Now, the flip side of that, of course, is that you, uh, once you are given that opening, you know, you sort of have to push the door down a little bit. Mm-hmm. And I will say that for all of my flaws, which are, of course, legion, uh, I am a driven person when it comes to what it is I want to try to express. I think part of that comes from what you've already asked me about, Scott, because a lot of it comes from when when you grow up in an environment where really the idea of art, of cinema, these are not valued um, or not considered viable opportunities for employment. I think you really let, you start to say, I have to fight to be heard. Mm-hmm. And when you have to fight to be heard, it's a powerful weapon actually, to drive. Uh-huh. You will hear what I have to say, God damn it. Mm-hmm. And um, I think that is, I, it's weird. I have three children whom uh, I adore till the cows come home. I want to eat them. But <laughs> I don't, I have not given them that same animus, you know? So I don't know if they have drive or grit or not because I encourage their interests. Right. So maybe a part of me wonders if I should just be saying, you'll never make it, <laughs> right. but I never do that. You know, they want to play guitar, we get them the guitar lessons, right. this kind of thing. And they live a very privileged life in that way, even more than I did. So this grit, uh, which I do 
I will say I did have at that age and still sort of do. Uh, it's it does come from that background, and it comes from also trying, as you put it, to succeed early and quickly. Mm-hmm. But a lot of it was luck. So that just to keep the chronology straight for folks, the student film is Cowboys and Angels in '91, your year That's that you right. graduate. By '94, that's right. Little Odessa, this first film is out, and we'll just say again: you're 23 when you made it, 24 right. when it comes out. Uh, Vanessa Redgrave, Tim Roth, you win the Silver Lion at the Venice Film Festival, right. Independent Spirit Award nomination, yep. and, and just for in case anyone just needs a log line of, of to go check out the film, essentially the underworld of uh, Russian Jewish Brighton beach right um that's right so i wonder as this is this first outing is going the way that i've just described are you thinking this is the way it's always going to be like this is smooth sailing like you know this is too too good to be true or what were, what were you making of it at that age again the answer is complicated because i'll tell you when i finish i did think of myself during the shoot as the second greatest English language film director who's ever lived. <laughs> I thought I was just the perfect human being. I couldn't believe how smart and good looking I was, you know, all this. Who's number one, by the way? I think at the time I would have said Stanley Kubrick. Okay, okay. But now my opinions are, I mean, I still love Kubrick, but yes. my opinions are a bit different. But at the time I thought I was really great, really great. And um, I was watching dailies, and I was saying, look at this, masterful, masterful. And then, as I'm fond of recounting, uh, but it's all true, March 5th, 1994 happened. It's the day I walked to the studio, and the editor said, here's the assembly. (laughs) And it was the worst thing I had ever seen in my life. Now, is that always, you hear people when they see the first assembly of their film, it's never a fun rarely a fun experience it's a terrible experience okay it is such a a humbling i was not prepared for it on any level and i just i remember seeing it going i can't believe it (laughs) well and i that night i went to bed i lay down and i started you you know the expression you say flop sweat you know yeah i started sweating and I started breathing very heavily, and my heart had palpitations, and I thought, I'm dying. And I called my brother, who's a physician. He said, no, 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 it's anxiety. You have big anxiety issues right now. And I thought that was when the sense of myself came crashing to disaster. I then had a kind of uh, situation where I felt that I had to discover a, a film in the editing room and sort of make it in the editing room and make it work. And when I went to Venice, uh, everyone told me before we went to Venice that it was a terrible film. But I remember a a wonderful man named Gillo Pontecorvo who directed a true masterpiece called The Battle of Algiers. And Gillo Pontecorvo ran the Venice Film Festival. And he saw the film, and to this day I don't know how, and contacted me and he said, this is an incredible film. What are you? What are you? And I remember saying, "What? What am I? What? What, what do you mean? What am I? I mean, what are you?" But he, and then he said, "No, Gilo wants to know who are you." <laughs> I said, "No, well, I'm just this is my first film. This your first film, incredible. We want to show it in Venice, Arandi Festival." So the next thing I know, I'm on a plane to Venice. I'm dressed. 
absolutely wrong for every event. I never forget. I said, this, I said, this is a Venice. How shall I dress? They said, oh, it's Venice. It's very casual. A jeans, a t-shirt. It's okay. And so I dress in a sport coat, and of course, everyone else is in black tie. <laughs> then my official screening comes up. That was for the opening night. My official screening comes up. Black tie. I'm in black tie. Everyone else is in jeans and a t-shirt. They think I'm a, a waiter. They're giving me drink orders. So I was just out of sync the whole time I was there. And I was so depressed that the screening, you know, ended. And it was like, like one person clapping. And I thought, oh my God, it's a complete disaster. I got on a plane, went back and flew back to LA. And when I got off the plane, uh, a man was holding a sign saying, James Gray, call this number, like literally right when you step off the plane into that little walkway. So I called the number. They said, no, the movie has won two prizes. You have to go and fly back. <laughs> so I flew right, right back. back to Venice where I had dinner with Al Pacino, I remember, who had won some lifetime achievement thing. And I was like, I didn't think I was great at the time, Scott. The only thing I thought was, I survived, right. and somehow this happened to me because I had, I had such valleys. But that's show business. You know, you have huge peaks and huge valleys, and it can change on a dime. Well, that's what I guess I, I want to ask you next because so from that high of the reception to the movie, which continued through beyond that, it's then six years before The Arts comes out. Now, Little Odessa was, as we say, a successful movie, but right. as a— as a new filmmaker, I don't know how long can one live off of one movie. Is sick, and 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 I I just wonder was the was the delay for the next one a choice or something that was sort of forced by things beyond your control? I made a commitment to myself that, and I've said this before, but that my own failure would be mine that I didn't want to get into a position where I made bad films and was blaming other people privately and getting bitter because I'd seen some evidence of that already. I know because every director does, and yes, every director does, make bad movies. If you're a great director, you've made two or three good ones. So knowing that will happen... I wanted the failure to be my own. I wanted to be able to own it. So that was the first rule I had for myself after making that movie. I said, I'm going to fail, but I want to fail on my own terms. So I didn't have as much trouble getting people interested in my second film uh, on the acting side. I had a lot of wonderful actors that wanted to be in it. What I did have was trouble finishing the film. In that case, was uh, with Harvey Weinstein. And the film was in post for... Uh, two and a half years, he uh, put the film on hiatus for a long time in order to, you know, in his words, make sure Hillary Clinton was elected to the Senate, you know, and he was really trying to fundraise for her campaign. And he put, a, uh, I think, three films actually in hiatus. Uh, the one good thing that came out of it is I became an excellent cook because we were watching a lot of the early iteration of the Food Network, right. I remember, right. with uh, Mario Batelli's Molto Italiano <laughs> or something. So I was, I was trying to study Italian cooking. We'd go into the editing room and not have anything to do. So that's part of the reason it was six years. It wasn't really. In fact, I shot the film three years mm -hmm. after uh, Little Odessa had come out. And I had to fight for the film. And in the end, I lost a couple of battles, uh, one of which was about the ending. 
which was, by the way, the principal focus of criticism when the film came out. And I was so saddened, I didn't have final cut. There was no way I could get the film out there without that ending. But I remember being so upset because it was the thing I didn't want. Right. And it was the thing that was being criticized. Kept being picked at, yeah. And can we just note, though, going back a second, co-written with Matt Reeves, who I know you remain... Oh, he's one of with. my closest buddies. And he was one of the people at USC who would go to these screenings oh, really? along with Singleton okay. and, and other people who have, uh, my friend Brian Burke, who's a producer, right. you know, produced Star Wars with J.J. Abrams. Well, so that's the that's your co-writer. Your star is someone who you then would work with more than anyone else, I believe. Yeah. And that's Joaquin, Joaquin Phoenix. Phoenix. And in terms of the story, you've said sort of, among the inspirations, uh, Claude Chabral, right, and Visconti, but also it, it, it is hard to imagine that a, a, a story that involves a little bit of extra legal activities around, you know, railroad contracts is it can't not be in some ways inspired by the stuff we talked about with your father, right? Oh, of course. It was totally his story. Yeah. No, there's no doubt about it. I had wanted to make something about my father's situation in, in with kind of the trappings of like what you might call, this is really pretentious, but this is what I remember thinking in 1997 or whatever, <laughs> uh, was like I was getting really into opera. Mm. And I had read all about the tradition of what they call verismo, which was originally actually uh, started by uh, the... Uh, the writer Emile Zola from this book Germinal, very much part of the the struggle of working class people treated with tremendous dignity and beauty and a kind of epic scope lent to the, that struggle. And uh, Puccini is, uh, La Boheme is very small opera, for example. Mm -hmm. And so I wanted to do something like, almost like channeling Visconti and, and Francis Coppola, this kind of very operatic, almost Italian quality to the movie and uh you know all these things would be applied to my father's story and uh that was really all that I, i'd want that was my way of trying to do something personal and in some ways autobiographical uh within a different formal context now your father was still alive then and actually through the making but not the completion of uh armageddon time right what just because, you know, I I, I'm, I can't help but wonder, what did he make of his story being shown to the world in a way? He was a strange person. Uh, he wasn't an, an effusive guy. And I think part of him loved it, to be honest, because he loved knowing that his story was represented in some way, even if it was less than edifying, and in some ways ugly. Uh, I think that he thought it was great that I was telling his story because it meant he was heard. Right, right. Which is interesting, too, because in some other cases of the later pictures where, like, for example, I made a film called The Immigrant, which mm -hmm. he, there's no father figure in it, and Lost City of, of Zed, in which the father figure is essentially an alcoholic and a, a gambler and is not really in the story. He actually literally didn't like those movies as much. <laughs> and I, I'm, a part of me wonders if that's the reason. Right. Well, uh, 
I guess I have to also ask you about Joaquin Phoenix because what what was the I, I can't say I know either of you very well, but I've I've seen a lot of your work, and I don't know. To me, it's I would not have necessarily guessed that you guys would be the, the you know it feels a little like an odd couple. I don't mean to maybe I'm very wrong about that, but how did you guys find each other, and why do you think it worked for I believe four so far? I connected with him immediately. I I, I love your read as an odd couple. I think that's quite funny. <laughs> But I'm not sure how odd couple we are. We have the same way of looking at the world, and our, we have almost precisely the same opinions about uh, films and works of art and the way the world is. So in, 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 in some respects, it's an odd couple thing, but it always is going to be with an actor and director because actors tend to be more charming, better looking, more charismatic, you know, and know more about the intimacies of human behavior than directors. Directors tend to be like uh, bullies, you know. We tend to be uh, filled with that kind of grit and drive I talked about, and we tend to be uh, more openly megalomaniacal. <laughs> so in that way, yes, we're an odd couple. But in that way, every actor-director right. pairing is That's an odd, odd couple. couple. Right. And in the real ways that matter, which is the how much we agree on artistic uh, notions. Well, that's pretty much 100% agreement. And I, you know, I'll probably make another film with him maybe sooner rather than later. Uh, I love working with him because he is, he really is as close to genius as anybody as I've worked with in, in that arena. And I, I mean, I've worked with other tremendous actors, so there is, he may be first among equals in a mm -hmm. sense. I mean, Marion Cotillard was oh, yeah. a absolutely brilliant actor and Vanessa Redgrave is brilliant and but I I loved I've there's really nobody uh, in any of the pictures like I loved for example I absolutely loved working with Eva Mendes on We Own the Night I thought she was fantastic and so giving and so generous she was great and uh, I loved working with of course I love Mark Wahlberg who's mm -hmm. made two films yeah. with me so there are a lot of people I feel simpatico with and in the case of Joaquin um, I think what he and I synced up on a lot was this notion of two things, really. The first is that when you say actor so-and-so nailed it, that we're actually against that idea because it means you're playing the role as expected. And what Joaquin is able to do in a unique way is surprise you while still making sense for the scene, and still actually playing consistent to character. The choices are unique that he makes. And you'll watch him work. It's almost like live theater. You don't know what will happen. So you, you sit there and you say to him, this is what the scene's about. This is what uh, is going on with the character. This is the mood of the scene. Yeah, yeah I understand. Okay, let's go. <laughs> and I always roll camera on the rehearsal. And it is always something that I did not expect. Mm. Now, sometimes, rarely, I'll say to myself, mm, I don't know if it's consistent with what I wanted here. I don't know if it helps me tell the story, but that is that is infrequent. Mm -hmm. What is much more frequent is, I can't believe I didn't think of that way to play the scene. I love that. Mm -hmm. So that's what Joaquin gives me. Gives and I read it was me. just a pure stroke of luck, right? Because he was dating... That's right. He Liv was dating Tyler. Liv Tyler. Yeah. 
And Liv, whom I love as well, by the way, I think is a wonderful person and a very good actor. She uh, she got the script. I don't know who sent it to her. I want to say that Harvey Weinstein did because mm-hmm. at that time, this, they had owned, they had just bought the script and started to send it out all over the place. Yeah. And I got the call that Joaquin had just picked up the script basically and said the title of this is better than all the scripts I've been getting. And he started to read it and really liked it. So it was very much a, a great good fortune. We met at a restaurant called Piadina in Manhattan and we instantly got along gangbusters. I believe our first meeting was about five hours long. Wow. Well, the other one other noteworthy thing about the yards in terms of where it with your whole body of work is that that was the first, but definitely not the last time that you had a movie invited to premiere at Cannes. And I've got to ask you about this. Uh, it seems like a mutual love affair with the French and, and you, because it's not that you're not very admired and appreciated in this country, but they, it seems like it's a Jerry Lewis like affection that it runs somehow they maybe get you even more than a lot of Americans. I know they're, I, I don't want to put words in your mouth, but I wonder what you make of it. Cause I've seen also the, the other side of this, where you have spoken about how the French get, get you, uh, you how, how it's, I get, think that it is very mutual, but also you had talked about, you know, they were the ones that uh, Truffaut understood Hitchcock before um, and appreciated Hitchcock before Americans really did and and other examples like that so just um and i'm going to just read actually one other quote that i remember here i came across this was in the new york times a piece about you at ken he is not simply another director he is one of the festival's chosen auteurs as well as a celebrity in his own right close quote and they talk about just you're a rock star you walk around the croissant and it's it, you know you might as well be brad pitt so i just wonder if you can share anything about that relationship. It's funny, uh, as you pointed out at the beginning of this, uh, Venice is where I actually won, the film won prizes. Yes. Uh, In Cannes, I've been now five times, and the films have gone unrecognized by the juries. There are a variety of reasons for that. Mm -hmm. But the funny thing about it is that I don't really have a love affair uh, with Cannes, I would say more accurately and proudly, Cannes has a love affair with me. Yes. They always want the movies. Yes. Uh, I, I don't think it's a great place for American cinema uh, because I think what happens there is unless, unless the head of the jury is an American, uh, it is almost impossible for an American film to be recognized in some way. It's not me sour grapes, but it's just a fact. The last Palme d'Or winner for example, where an American was not running the jury is, I think, over 30 years ago. Yeah, and and even, like, Marty and one other, I think, are the two. Well, Martin Scorsese won for Taxi Driver, and Tennessee Williams was the head of the jury. Okay. So... Well, I mean, Marty the movie, not... Oh, the, but, oh, the movie yeah, Marty? Yeah, you yeah, yeah. That's how Borton far back on? we're going, yeah. No, I think, you, I think it's probably, if memory serves, it's Barton Fink, was a, which was I believe was Polanski. Okay. But Polanski even had worked within the American system. My yeah, point yeah. is not, you know, boo-hoo-hoo, why doesn't the movie win prizes? What I mean is that it is very much a place where American cinema is adored by French critics, but it is not a place where it's chosen necessarily to be celebrated. Right. Uh, and so 
I'm reluctant to take the films there. Mm. But because you're quite right, the films tend to be, for whatever reason, extremely successful financially in France and critically, uh, that it becomes very important for the French distributors to have that little you know, palm yes. frond at the yes. beginning of the movie, which, of course, Americans don't care at all about. <laughs> so I always wind up going through this same unwanted ritual where I go to, the, <laughs> to Cannes, to go to the Quasette. You know, it's, but it's not just me that thinks this, by the way. I mean, Steve Soderbergh said something completely hilarious about it once to me. He said, showing your movie in Cannes is like having to sit through your movie and watch every frame last for 30 seconds. <laughs> but you know what's also true? is that I think it is a bad place, and I'm going to say this, I think it is a bad place to assess a film. You have to watch, in the best case, as you will tell me this as a critic, I don't know, uh, but as a, certainly as I've been on the jury, and on the jury you have to watch two and three pictures a day, and sometimes the first screening is at 8 o'clock in the morning, and especially me from L.A., I, have, I had jet lag, and you, your perception does become clouded. It totally, does. Totally. And so the critical evaluation in Cannes is often a strange and unrepresentative bubble. Well, you're ex just to butt in for one second, I know that you've had extremes on both ends of that, right? Like where I think it was Two Lovers, right? Where they were pretty mean. And then it was fine out in the real world. Oh, when it came out, it got very good reviews much right, later. Right. That's a perfect example. You, you, because let's face it, the, in that case, in the case of Two Lovers, you're talking about a very narrative movie, but a deceptively narrative movie. It's a very dark movie. It's uh, He plays a very troubled person. But in the context of something where, you know, and I don't say this disparagingly, by the way, because I think he's made beautiful films, but like Lars von Trier is the movie right before it. Uh, it, it you can see the way that the context is all of a sudden so off right. for your movie. It's like... Wait, what? No palate cleanser. There's yeah. no palate cleanser. Exactly right. And I saw it as a jury member mm -hmm. where I would say to myself, oh my God, I have to kind of recalibrate and think, what were the ambitions of the filmmaker? Because you lose the sight of, sight of that in Cannes. It would take someone of titanic greatness almost to be able to separate him, her, themselves entirely from that experience. I don't a single know a single person who could. No, totally. And it's jarring even, you know, you just see it as a journalist where you the first thing you see on the screen if you're in the theater is all the participants involved with the movie showing up in their tuxes and whatever. And then they sit down and there's always the... O almost uh, overly weirdly long applause for everything, right? But but then the movie goes on, and the same people who are in the tuxes are, you know, it could be a Romanian movie about poverty and Rome. It's just it's it's disjointed, but it's completely disjointed. Yeah. It's bizarre. Now there are, of course, some incredible aspects of Cannes. Right? Cannes has discovered fantastic new talents. Uh, there have been, of course fantastic Palme d'Or winners through the years, which have maintained this kind of magical hold on us. But the flip side is, it really doesn't mean a whole lot. And in fact, it is this unrepresentative, strange, and surreal place to go and show your work. Right. Well, I believe you were there with both of the Next two, which were also with Joaquin, right? Both We Own the Night, 2007, 
and Two Lovers 2008. That's right. And I guess the the thing that I just want to note with those, We Own the Night, you're returning to sort of the immigrant experience in a way. Two Lovers, the the Jewish experience, things that I find it interesting just that maybe, I don't know if this was something you're conscious of when you're picking projects or what you want to focus on, but the themes that run through the work right through from the beginning through uh, Armageddon time are are clearly there. Is there any rhyme or reason? Uh, I mean, everyone's shaped, of course, by their family, their religion, their different things like that. But is there something you're trying to figure out in terms about yourself, your own identity, your own experience, uh, you know, often even set in Queens, these these stories, or around Queens. Or Brooklyn, where my grandparents were. Or Brooklyn, were. right. Yeah. So just, uh, do you think that the reason you keep returning to those themes, not that there's anything wrong with doing so, and they've it's been great, but I wonder, are you trying to answer something for yourself? Uh, to the degree that that's the case, I hope I never come up with the answer, right. because that would mean uh, that I was lying to myself to the nth degree. I don't think life provides you with an answer. I think the closest thing that you come to and uh, that's an answer is actually right when lockdown started with COVID, my very young, my youngest kid, who was, he was, he was 11, I think at the time. And he said, daddy, come outside. I want you to see something. And we went out to the garden and he showed me a beautiful praying mantis. And he was talking about, you know, the iridescent wings and uh, I started. He was. He started taking. He took my phone. He took all these pictures. I still have them. Mm. All these pictures of the praying mantis. And I, I, the first at first blush, I said, "What am I doing here, looking at a praying mantis?" And then I realized that he actually did have the answer. That there was such a gorgeousity in the simplicity of his view of the world, and he was appreciating the glint of light on its wings, and that to me was the answer. Mm-hmm. So. The degree to which I find an answer in the riddles of my identity, I don't think that's ever going to come to pass. But I do think it's the principal struggle of each and every one of us. Now, how conscious we are of that is a different issue, Mm -hmm. right? Some people uh, go through life uh, basically pushing the idea of their mortality to the side, and they do an excellent job of it, right? Mm -hmm. Focused on, uh, you know, Thursday evening is poker night or whatever, which, and I'm not declaiming this, uh, this is a great thing in life if you're able to focus on that. Uh, Others suffer terribly at the idea of knowing that that he or she, they will die. So we each handle this differently. And my own view is that the work should reflect your personal commitment so the degree to which you see a similarity, um, not a I similarity take, between just the just uh, thematic. No, I yeah, know exactly yeah. what you mean. I know yeah. exactly the the thematic thread is there. Mm. And may I say, uh, risking sounding like I have great hubris on the matter, it's the, maybe the one thing I'm most proud of because that means I'm trying to put myself into the work. Totally and. To me, that's what I'm supposed to be doing. Now, there are people who work in a commercial context who are able, for example, I've always admired hugely um, Christopher Nolan and, and, and Steven Spielberg and, and people like that who are able to convey to me their personal state of soul without 
resorting to certain tactics like that are the tropes of independent cinema. In other words, they stay inside the system but subvert it. Mm -hmm. So I have huge admiration for that. At the same time, it doesn't mean that everybody should be doing the same exact thing. No. Because, you know, you don't go to a restaurant, they say, here, Scott, here's the menu, and you have one dish, right? That would be pretty enraging. Right. You at least want three or four. Right. So my attitude is you do what it is you can do to contribute to this uh, mountain of uh, human endeavor that we call progress. And in my way is to try to communicate my personal state of soul as best I can. Absolutely. The one thing I do want to follow up on, though, because it leads into the next movie that came along chronologically in 2013, The Immigrant, the, I, the idea of, you know, now and, and in the last few years, it's it's been the topic of immigration has been made front and center by certain political yes. figures who I know you and I both Dis dislike quite a bit. Um, you're nodding your head. Well, it's just yeah. such a sadness, you know. Right. It's like, think of who we were in this right. way and where right. we've come to. But I guess, so clearly you're thinking about the immigrant experience way predates that. And you mentioned your grandparents, I think you said, came in 1923 to Ellis Island. The immigrant, I believe, is 1921 That's when right. they're coming. Uh, and I have to say, that I, I've... I very much liked all of your movies, but that one somehow really affected me as much as any of them. And I and part of it, as you say, you got these two incredible actors with you, Joaquin and Marianne Cotillard. Um, but it's just I, I I think it it humanized that immigrant experience of that era in a way that I'd never thought about. Obviously, this one, from everything I've been able to gather, is not. Uh, very much based on your own family's immigrant experience in terms of what happens to Marianne's. No, that's true. Right? But there were a lot of the, a lot of it is ripped from the stories of my of my grandparents because okay. what happened was my great grandfather had a saloon on the Lower East Side called Hurwitz's, mm. and there were all manner of character types that came in there. One, one of whom was apparently a guy named Max Hoxton. Uh, Max Hoxton is the character is is the person that Joaquin Phoenix's character is based on. He okay. was a Lower East Side pimp, and he would go to Ellis Island to recruit uh, what they used to call white slavery was what the what right. the uh, this this was known as. And I heard these stories directly from my great aunt who died when she was 104 so i and she was lucid until probably a, a 101st or 102nd birthday wow. so i knew all of these stories and it came from those and i also did use part of my grandparents experience the whole thing about the cossacks chopping the heads off that that came from my grandmother's experience wow. so there is weirdly a lot of personal stuff in there and the apartment itself where joaquin phoenix lives is from all the photographic evidence I have of my grandparents' wow. apartment on the Lower East Side. So there is a lot of wow. me in there. I guess, you know, you'd mentioned opera as a love of yours. That one... Hugely, it's in there. Feels operatic, right? Well, not only that, right? You, you literally had... we In that, one of the greatest gifts of cinema is like it's the closest thing we have to a time machine. Mm -hmm. And I had read about... Enrico Caruso coming to sing for the immigrants not too long before he died. And 
he he performed Puccini for uh, uh, immigrants at night as part of a show. And I thought, oh my God, that's fantastic. I have to recreate that. And so we fanatically recreated this concert that Caruso gave, which is inconceivable now. I mean, it's, it would be like, you know, Taylor Swift giving a concert at the Social Security office. You know, it's it's <laughs> such a weird, like it's an amazing thing that he did right. that. He was a superstar, uh, Caruso. Anyway, so I, 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 weirdly, it came from that. Wow. Hearing that he sang Puccini for immigrants, I thought, oh, well, that's a beautiful scene to put in the, in the movie. And then... I scored the film with Puccini and Gounod, uh, and I scored the and I after scoring the film that way, it's I I remember listening to that music before the movie was shot, and it started to inform the style of the movie itself. By the way, it's a it's a favorite of mine that movie. Uh, some people really didn't like it at all when it came out because it's very unlike what is in movie theaters. I mean, it's it's sort of unabashedly melodrama uh it has an un but that comes from the tradition of opera yeah and silent film really like she she she's a, such a great actor and i i was i remember we talked a lot about falconetti from uh from the carl dreyer film about joan of arc and this kind of almost silent film facial expressions and joaquin understood that too it is a very stylized movie but uh I I like it because I had an amazing experience with them, and I felt very connected with the actors and Jeremy Renner too, and and Darius Kanji's work in it. And so, I think back on that film with just a tremendous amount of affection. And then once it was done, then you ran into Harvey Weinstein again. Well, that I that was not my fault. The first no, 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 time I'm not was yeah no I know you weren't, yeah. but the first time the first time was was my fault. Because I sold the script to him. This time, I made the film with uh, just uh, independent money. I had final cut. And then I heard that he bought the film. And I didn't understand why he did. I was crestfallen. Because we didn't have a great relationship on the first one. I didn't think he would like this. I thought it should be, you know, Sony Classics mm -hmm. or Searchlight or one of these places. Um, and the next thing I knew... He had seen the film and, of course, hated it. And he said uh, that the ending of the film had to be that Marion is sitting in a rocking chair, okay? And she's, like, old, okay? She's narrating the movie, all right? She's saying, look how great it turned out for us, okay? My sister and I, we went to Hollywood. It was great. I'm like, what? What are you talking about? <laughs> I said, well, you're telling me to, to end it like Titanic? <laughs> That's another movie. It's called Titanic. It already exists. What are you talking about? Right. And he goes, no, not Titanic. Don't be an ass. You know what I'm saying. They should be walking over the mountain. Her sister and her walking over a mountain, a bright sun, California, and the soaring music. And I'm like... Right, that's the sound of music. <laughs> so you want the sound of music and then to go into Titanic. <laughs> I said, but that's not the ending of the movie. And right. the movie should be, oh, it's not what an opera ends like. Well, what the fuck do I care about opera? You don't care. you know. And then, right. so I said, well, I'm not going to do that. Mm -hmm. And so his answer was, fuck you. Mm -hmm. And my answer was, fuck you. <laughs> and this went on and on. And then finally, uh, to make a long story longer for you, I said, <laughs> I won't do it, and he shelved the movie. Mm -hmm. And this one, the year went by, and I 
would not change it. Because you know what happens when you change the film is that the viewing public and critics and journalists think that it's yours. Right. And then for the crummy idea, which I learned on the yards, the crummy idea that people think is your idea, you get criticized for and you had nothing to do with it. Right. And I did not want to get into that again because I knew his ideas were movie destroying. Mm -hmm. He also edited out huge chunks of the film. He, he showed me his cut, which was 88 minutes long, and made absolutely no sense. Mm -hmm. I mean, the film itself is, I believe, an hour and 54 minutes, something like that, which is not an egregious length, particularly no. when you have eight minutes of credits. Mm -hmm. And I just felt, I think I did cut three minutes out of it for him mm -hmm. uh, to try and appease him a little bit, to show that I wasn't just some obstinate jerk. But it wasn't good enough for him because he was, in fact, was, is, he's still with us, but he was certainly someone who fancied himself a filmmaker. Right. And he was a, a frustrated director. He wanted to direct. I don't know why he just didn't go direct. Well, I do know why he didn't go yeah. direct. Because that would really put him exposed, at risk. And I, I think he did try it. Oh, he sure did. And it didn't go well. Playing for Keeps is the yes, name of the movie. Yes, yes. And it's not the one from 2002 oh. or whatever. There's one in the 80s and he did right, it. Right, So, you know, I don't, I'm uncomfortable now, you know, just crapping all over Harvey Weinstein. It's in a way too easy a target. And, and, and the truth is, is that many people endured things far worse than I, it turns out. You know, I had to deal with someone trying to recut my film and failing and maybe shelving the movie. And other people had to deal with the uh, integrity of their souls. Mm -hmm. So um, it's quite a disastrous story all around. And I'm not you know, it's not it's not a particularly uh, uplifting one by any means. So, my whole my whole thing is, how did I survive that? Uh, was to just basically wait him out. But I'll tell you that that is other than the year that we talked about with my mother's death and my father's uh, legal problems. That's the worst year of my life. Because wow. you just didn't know if it was going to see the light of day. Absolute anguish, like yeah. you can't believe. Because I had done work that I was very proud of, and I loved. Marion and Joaquin in it and Jeremy so much and what Darius did and I really thought with that cast and what I had done and the what I thought how the film would be received for it to be shelved is insane yeah totally it's crazy and those of us who found it loved it I think for the very most part well it, it, this is uh, in some ways it, it, not in you know, box office terms, but it was, in some ways it was a success story because I did wait it out. And then finally, after a year went by, he decided to release it. I don't know why. Uh -huh. I think it was maybe because I made a bit of a stink in certain circles, but he finally did release it. Five theaters. Did not send out Academy screeners. She won yeah. basically every major critics prize for that performance. And the picture somehow managed to play in 110 theaters for... I mean, this is a person who did not want to release the movie. And to this day, I get maybe a, a letter or email a week about the film. Wow. So people are seeing it. They have seen it over yeah. the years. No, totally. Now, the, the thing that I wonder is prior to... The Immigrant, had you ever used CGI? Have you ever directed anything with CGI before? Because... What I I know that it's not it's not like it's in your face CGI, but in order to recreate part of the period uh, accurately, that had to be there. And then I wonder because you're 
your next two projects were just on such a larger scale and that was more of a presence there with some of to some degree with Lost City of Z in 2016 and at Astra in 2019 I just wonder did that give you any idea of what you were getting into with the subsequent two to your point uh let me answer very straightforwardly it was not my first experience with CG okay. in fact there was a very major experience I had with CG, which was an altogether great one, was on a uh, car chase that I did for a movie called We Own the Night, which course, predates yeah. this. Yes, yes. And yes. all of that rain was CG. We had bright, sunny skies. Every day we shot it over a six-day period. And I didn't know what to do because that was a major source of the story. So all of that turned out to be the brilliant work at a company called Digital Domain, which is sadly not long, no longer with us. And those guys were the greatest. So I had that experience under my belt by the time I decided to do The Immigrant. And The Immigrant was a great deal of fun in that way because the whole idea was uh, you're watching a movie and you don't know about any visual effects. I see uh, about six shots which really bother me in The Immigrant. Really? Yeah, and then, by the way, this is always the case. You you make a film and there's always like four or five or six shots that torture you. That you notice, but nobody that else you does. you notice or you hope yeah, nobody else does. Right. There are about six of them in The Immigrant, but most of them are really, really good. I mean, there, there are a, several long shots, for example, of the Lower East Side, which have actually fewer CG than you think because you have to do the whole ground level uh, practically. So we still had to take over a long stretch right off Arthur Avenue in the Bronx, which had the same dimensions as the Lower East Side and the same kind of structures. Uh, we couldn't shoot, of course, in the Lower East Side because that's a bunch of, you know, Jill Sander boutiques or something now. <laughs> so so that, 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 but that does have something like 280 visual effects shots, an enormous number. Wow. So what was it having always worked on a relatively modest scale and by choice i think absolutely uh, what made you what what lured you or intrigued you about going to a larger scale with the stuff right after the immigrant it, i didn't have a real idea which was okay i have to make something big you know it didn't really work like that what happened was uh i had been sent the book of Lost City of Zed before it was printed, before it was published, excuse me. And I just thought, well, I'm of the age where if I'm ever going to try something like this, it's now. I mean, that would have been, what was that, 20? I got sent the book, I think, 2010 or 2011. That sounds right. And I started writing it. I wrote The Immigrant at the same time. I wrote The Immigrant in parallel. Um, and I want to say... So that would have put me at, what, 41 or 42, something like that, years old. And I remember thinking, this is the moment. Because I don't want to be too old. I don't want to be like 78 and like dying in Amazonia <laughs> or something. But, the, but really, the ambition was to conjure the magic of those filmmakers whom I love, you know. It was David Lean and Francis Coppola and and uh, Werner Herzog's work, and all these people I love and revere and respect. So I went down there to uh, Amazonia and, to, of course, also to the UK. It was a split production. Mm -hmm. And it actually was not that expensive a movie. I mean, it was $19 million. Mm -hmm. 
was how much we were given. And I think with tax break stuff, it was more than that. But that was the money we raised. And really, it was an epic for that amount of money yeah. of uh, a huge undertaking. I think I, I kind of think I went a little nuts on it. Perhaps like like Karzagon. Well, not quite or... like that. <laughs> but I will tell you that when you're, you know, it's week three and four and five or whatever, and you're standing in the Don Diego River up to your knees and you see, you know, caimans swimming around and, you know, bats are right over your head and monkeys are howling. It really, you're not supposed to be there. <laughs> well, so that was, that was that one. And then on the heels of it was at Ashra, which you have said quote creatively it became a very torturous experience close quote why was that and in fact i think prior to that you had been looking at a different one with brad right you were gonna brad pitt you were gonna do i had read at one point the gray man no that's right but that that unfortunately didn't last very long you know as a concept uh, that was right around when i was working on the immigrant and i had been sent that book uh and the script by the people at new regency and Brad wanted to do it at the moment. I had some fantastic action sequences, and I was really interested in doing a very subjective kind of action film. But it, it, it very, very different from the film that they finally made with Ryan Gosling. In fact, it bears no resemblance whatsoever, ultimately. Oh. But um, the, the the creative difficulties on on Ad Astra were basically this: if if you are the person who writes and directs the film but you're not the person with the most important opinion in the room, you're going to face problems. It's, it's, your voice cannot be one of many, particularly if it's that kind of movie. Mm -hmm. I, I sort of get it, actually, if you're brought on board as the director of a film that is a sort of a proven franchise, that it's your job, in a sense, to maximize the, the situation you're given. But if it's a writer-director movie and, you know, everyone's telling you their opinions and you have to do this and you have to do that. And then ultimately it winds up not really resembling what it is you had in mind. Well, that's not quite as far as we got on that. I mean, there are things in the film I'm very proud of. Um, and I think you can see the sort of basic idea that I had in mind. And I think the actors are beautiful enough that you can see it communicated. But my cut, for example, is 12 minutes shorter. And I don't know of any other director's cut that's significantly shorter. Right. With a significantly different ending, with significantly less and different voiceover, with, you know, more Ruth Nega and more Donald Sutherland. And, and yet it's 12 minutes shorter. I mean, it's a very different edit. How does that even happen, though? So it just essentially you felt it was taken away from you. Well, it was. Yeah. Um, it was taken away from me, and it's not my cut of the movie out there now like i said there are still sections of the film i'm 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 proud of i i, I love that lunar rover sequence although i didn't want it scored actually i wanted just mm -hmm. silence and very strange space sounds but you can see that that is considered a kind of rogue idea right you know that they wanted to you know over the over the sequence and my own view was that to succeed with this kind of film, you have to be bold and really go out there. And, 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 and if you're going to do, you know, with the, you know set, whatever the budget was, $78 million, if you're going to do that, you really have to take risks. And, uh, of course, everyone says yes, and then you take the risks, and they go, whoa, 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 whoa. <laughs> well, this, 
I think not coincidentally brings us to the the home stretch of talking about Armageddon time because correct me if I'm wrong, but like this sounds like it was a pretty disillusioning experience for you to the extent that it really I think from what I've been able to gather made you think about if you even wanted to do a film again anytime soon. But so you go off and do something that clearly was in a way a, a very different kind of dream and you get to pursue directing an opera and That's you're right. doing that in Paris coming off of this painful period. And it seems like it was out of that time away from doing what you normally do and who you're normally around and what's normally going on in your life that it occurred to you that maybe the story that we see in Armageddon time would be a, a good place to go next. So could you just explain? I mean, obviously we've seen your aspects of your family life before in your movies, but here to go to this period in 1980 in Queens and really look at yourself and your family in a different way than we've ever seen in, in a movie before, not a coincidence, right? That that comes out of the, the painful stuff. No, of course it wasn't a coincidence. And I thought to myself, I have to rediscover what it is that I love about the cinema. And I thought, okay, keep the budget small, keep the risk to everybody low, pay myself and the actors nothing, which is exactly what we did. The movie was a very, very cheap movie. And go and do something where if the risk is low, put all the risk into the art of it. And to do something challenging and screwed up and showing how complex things can be and not giving an answer to the audience, all the things that I thought maybe uh, some people might love it, but even if they didn't love it, maybe they would love it the second or third time around because all of these layers would reveal themselves over time. That was really what I thought, okay, that's what my dream was for, for cinema, for movies, to do something which had a lasting, some kind of lasting impact. And I don't mean impact like, oh, I want to be famous. I mean impact meaning that, you know, moves people, makes them think. Mm -hmm. And maybe at first blush... It's a little uncomfortable, troubling, like, wait, did that fully work or what? You know? But the truth is, the thing that would bother people was what the film was saying, not that the film wasn't working. Those are very different things. So that was, I remember thinking, that's my sort of, if I have this chance to rediscover that part of me and to keep the risk, like I say, financially low, then that's what I'm going to do. So that was the the sort of MO on the movie. And to, to, to make it, again, as personal, and this time personal and autobiographical mm -hmm. as I could, to try and make up nothing, mm -hmm. to try and say, this is three, year, three months of an extremely important period in my life, in American, what I think underratedly in American history, recent American history, and let the audience debate what it is. And that was why the movie was made. And also not a coincidence that it was, uh, I believe, gestating and coming to, coming together at a time when we were still in the Trump administration, right? And you have the Trumps, yes, they show up literally in the film, but also it's sort of speaking to that era, right? It totally is. I mean, it was pre-January 6th, obviously. Uh, it, it was written pre Black Black Lives Matter and George Floyd, and 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 it was written pre uh, democracy being in question yeah. is really the way I would put right. it. 
you know, and how much uh, changed in 2020, 21 with the pandemic, and particularly George Floyd, you know, that I, I didn't, obviously, how could you see that coming? I mean, it's not that it's uh, unexpectedly, you know, because you, you realize that uh, large segments of the American people live under these in brutal conditions every day. But I didn't expect also the weird concatenation, if that's the word, of that type of story with Mr. Trump, which is a, such a combustible, miserable combination. And so that lent a different context to the script, which was after I wrote it. I wrote it in the middle of really the Trump administration, about 2018, early 2019, something like that was when it started to percolate in my mind. And then 2019 is when I wrote it full stop. And it is weird that my own story somehow does come into contact with that family. Mm -hmm. Because the whole thrust of American life to me right now, it seems, is this wonderful bait and switch that very rich people, and, 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 and really, let's face it, mostly white Christian people have done, to, to push the attention away from themselves and onto other matters, to, to, to try to divert attention away from what is really the biggest theft in all of human history, which is to say the top 0.0000001% taking everything. So they pit all of us against each other. And it's just interesting to me that you, you've you said that you have, I think you've called it like kind of an outer borough, not complex, but you know what I'm saying? Like some, it affects insecurity. your weight. Insecurity. No question. And it's interesting because if you, I mean, you've probably seen this, but obviously Trump is all, Donald Trump is also from Queens. Maggie Haberman has said that she thinks he has this outer borough complex where you're looking at New York and- as a kid, it's so close and yet so far, and that how it can affect two people so differently. Obviously, you you've it's motivated you in in certain ways. For him, it's just fascinating that that would that that feeling of I need to assert dominance or or show that I'm the man. It's just it, yes, but Scott, you know your point is great, but I I, I want to bring up one big difference between Donald Trump and me. Right, I and mean, I'm not, not comparing you No, guys, I understand, so, yeah, yeah. but your your point is, yeah. is, is a good one because this is a big difference. I'm Jewish and he's not. Right. And our, my family had a, a view of the world, which was that we were under siege. Right. And I think that this is an important subject because we like to simplify things in life. But the truth is, privilege is multi-layered. Mm -hmm. And I've spoken of this before about how we can be both oppressor and oppressed at the same time. But it is not without worth, worth noticing that being Jewish in America, part of it is that you're between two worlds. The world of being literally a numerical minority, but also being strangely, I guess, white. And our position is... Uh, tenuous, and I think that that's probably the key difference between my own sense of um, displacement in the world and Donald Trump's drive towards killing everybody who doesn't give him what he wants. Mm -hmm. I didn't. I was never brought up with the idea, like you know, that I'm going to be a captain of industry. 
I was brought up with the idea that I should try to fit in as best I can to survive. Right. And it is amazing, again, just the timing that this movie comes out at a moment when anti-Semitism is unfortunately surging. It is the it is an issue of such, it is a moment of such profound sadness to me. And I must say, I don't fully understand it. Uh, you know, the, 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 this, the, I suppose it was always there, but I grew up in a moment where I didn't think it was likely or even quite possible in America. And sadly, I've learned that, that the opposite is true. It's very troubling. Totally. And I will just say, I find it, I'll, I, I will say this because I, you may not, you may not want to, although feel free to jump in if you want, but like this nonsense about who can play members of your, who you can cast to play your own family, which a few people have made an issue of. I mean, I find it the same way, like there's a, there's a Golda Meir project apparently in the works where they've cast Helen Mirren has signed on. And I think it's, I'm Jewish. I think it's fantastic. Find a better actress to play Golda Meir. It's, it's acting. I don't need a old Jewish lady to play Golda Meir in the same way that if Anthony Hopkins can play your dad or your grandfather rather, and do it in a way that makes you happy, who cares? Who else, who else's business is that? It's a sadness to me that people, in some small numbers, by the way, but they tend to be, I guess, loud, but it's a very silly dispute, really. Mm -hmm. Because think of the absurdity of the argument in any kind of historical context, that you walk through the Prado and you see Velasquez's renditions of Jesus, and you say he has no right to paint Jesus, he himself was not a Sephardic Jew, he was not present at the resurrection. It's, it, you, it, the arguments would then be unending. Can you not put on a production of King Lear because you have to make sure that whoever plays King Lear has Alzheimer's disease? The ending, the, the where does it end? Right, now there were people upset that it's there's not a 600-pound actor playing Brendan Fraser's character in The Whale. They're, it's not possible. But, but part of it is that, and what is sad to me, is that in the very laudable attempts to search for equity, uh, and they are laudable, uh, some people, and not most, by the way, but some people have felt that art deserves to play the role that the social and political and economic failings of the last few centuries have not made up for. It's not art's role. That's the apparatus of government and society and civil life to solve. Art is about revealing who we are and who we were, not who we wish we could be who and it's and in revealing who we are and who we were we search for a bigger truth not a documentarian's truth not we're not all margaret mead it's it's that's not the point of it the point of it is the extension of our compassion so that we can look into another soul and find that point of commonality if you shut that off if you say only a person who is X can play X, then all of that beauty that comes from that distance, I am not that person, but I am going to now sympathize and empathize that person, all of that beauty is gone. Part of the beauty of artistic representation is that distance. So I would ask of those people, whose intentions, by the way, are laudable in many respects, to contemplate that what rage should be focused at American corporate life 
is now being unjustly focused on the artist. The artist is the friend, not the enemy of compassion. Right. Well, my final question is just, you know, you ventured into, just before I'm going to get in time, a larger scale kind of filmmaking, which you had the experience that we've talked about. You've come back to what I guess would be called a mid-range budget, independent this movie? type movie. Well, uh, it's smaller than mid-range. Mid -range, smaller. And yet I wonder, it feels like this kind of film is not getting easier to make. And yet you don't want to, from what I gather, necessarily go back to the larger scale. So what's your outlook? What's your outlook at the moment, knowing that this is the sort of landscape of the business at the moment? I go back and forth. It depends on what day you get me. You know, Some <laughs> days I'm more optimistic and some days I'm more pessimistic. I like to keep fighting for the cinema that I love because I think we need it. Now, whether it has a staying power, I just don't know. It's funny. I, I actually think there are an enormous number of tremendously talented filmmakers. We are not going through any fallow period with talent. We have a ton of talented filmmakers from all over the world. I think the problem is actually now the audience. And I don't mean, oh, the audience sucks. What I mean is when they are trained to want only one kind of movie, they become a kind of collective monster. And so I think it's incumbent upon us to keep trying to educate uh, the audience to understand that there are many kinds of movies. And may I say, now that we're on this, this subject properly, I think it's time that we began to address the structural problems that go along with educating people about movies, one of which is, you know, the thumbs up, thumbs down, splotch tomato, like this reduction of movies for movies that are intentionally complex, rich, textured, is such a profound disservice. And you would not treat any other art form with such disrespect. You know, uh, Edward Hopper's Nighthawks gets eight and a half paintbrushes on my scale of 10 paintbrushes. Why is it acceptable for movies? I understand we love lists. We love giving it two and a half stars out of five, six star, whatever the ratings are. But I, I, I would hope that people would understand that this is a long-term project which requires educating people to expect all kinds of things from the movie-going experience. So we can talk all we want about the studios. And by the way, we should, because a lot of it, this pickle that we're in, and mm -hmm. let's face it, it's a pickle, mm -hmm. um, has been created by them. There was such a drive over decades, it didn't happen overnight, but such a drive towards making sure that there was maximum profitability at all turns and no investment in all these different kinds of cinema that have been such a rich part of American and really the world's cultural life, that the audience has begun to not expect it. So how do we educate people to start to expect it? Well, first of all, I'm going to just say this, and nobody's going to listen, but it's fine. <laughs> this is my one outlet, right? Let's start teaching all kinds of movies in, in high school. When you have to take art, that also your art teacher shows you uh, the conformist. Right. So I think if that starts to become part of the tradition, which by the way, it is in France, 
They have an understanding, actually, of the long-term implications of cinema as a cultural product, which is why there are government-financed uh, subsidies um, in cinema there. Now, I'm not sure that's the answer, because it's not like that's led to some amazing explosion of a new French new wave or something. But I think we have to start thinking in these terms, because the cinema is part of who we are as Americans. It's part of our cultural seed corn. This is not just some business that you cast off after it stops making money. This is part of our outreach into the world. So I think that these big blockbusters are great for the industry, but it doesn't mean that it's the only kind of movie that we should be making. So you asked me another question, do I have optimism about it or really, or what do I do? I think I keep fighting and I keep trying to make the films I want and love to make and need to make. And then you let the chips fall where they may. It cannot be the, the filmmaker who does the self-censoring. An executive can censor me. Right now, I'm trying to just express myself as best I can. We'll keep up the good fight. And thank you so much for the films and for doing this. And uh, You're welcome. Really appreciate it. Thank you. You're so welcome. I've really enjoyed this. Thank you. Thanks very much for tuning in to Awards Chatter. We really appreciate you taking the time to do that and would really appreciate you taking a minute more to subscribe to our podcast on iTunes or your podcast app and to leave us a rating as well. If you have any questions, comments, or concerns, you can reach me via Twitter at twitter.com slash Scott Feinberg. Until next time, thanks for joining us.